this morning, obviously, I am not Patrick Thompson. He is our senior pastor. Um, he and his wife have been on a tour of the Mediterranean uh, the last week or so. They're celebrating 25 years of marriage. And so uh, what a great example for us uh, to see a husband and wife that in the midst of change, in the midst of the trials that come in ministry, they are faithful uh, to God and they are faithful to one another in their love. And uh, they're able to celebrate 25 years of marriage. And I think it's great that we as a church uh, are able to uh, send them off with a blessing uh, to be able to do that. And so uh, thank you for being here this morning, even though you knew Patrick wasn't here. So uh, I'll apologize on that note as well that Patrick's not here and you're stuck with me. But nonetheless, uh, we're going to have a good morning. And I look forward to looking into 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, we've been going through this series, uh, Upright Views, and it's this challenge as we look through the book of 1 Peter to approach life with an appropriate view of everything that's going on around us and the circumstances and trials that we face in our own life, as well as the blessings that God gives us in our life. Uh, the reality of, of life is simply this, that we are either on a mountaintop or we are in a valley or we are in the transition between the two. And, and we find ourselves going through this ebb and flow of life where sometimes things are great and wonderful and we're experiencing great blessing. And then there's other times where we are facing great trial. We are facing great suffering. Anytime we lose someone that we love to death, it is an awful thing. Uh, we have some friends uh, from a previous church that we watched as their four or five and then six-year-old son as he made it through the years continued to fight cancer and eventually lost that battle and it is moments like those that even though this is not my child I can't help but cry to see the pain and the suffering that they're facing and that's the reality of life is that sometimes we face these difficult times and the the book of first Peter is written to Christians that at a time in history, they're facing some of the greatest persecution that Christians have ever seen. At this time, there's an emperor in charge named King ne or Emperor Nero. And Nero was borderline insane. Uh, Jeremy did a great job last week of talking about Nero and some of the things that he was known for. For example, the, the whole persecution against Christians began when Nero felt threatened by the number of Christians that were growing. And he began to become worried and concerned that this great number could be something that overthrows the empire, that overthrows this, this great kingdom that it massed in the Roman Empire. And so he started a fire that consumed a large portion of the city, and then he blamed the Christians, and that is the moment the persecution of Christians began. And just to give you a little insight into Nero's mind, some of the things that he would do to persecute and punish Christians would take place in the, the arena, for example, the great Colosseum. He would starve the lions, and then he would place Christians in the arena and release the lions, and these lions would just be looking for something to destroy just to have food. They would rip these Christians apart. He would throw these extravagant parties at night. And it would last for several nights in a row. And in order to be able to light these parties. He would line the party terrace. Or he would line the roads to the party with large poles. And would tie Christians to those poles. And would set them on fire to give light at night. 
This is the kind of man Nero is. This is the type of persecution that they're facing here in 1 Peter. And I think it's important for us to understand this as we get into our next topic. And what you see up there on the screen is, is simply this, that we are to have an upright view of being good stewards, stewards of God's grace. Now, the word stewards or stewardship may be a word that we're not, not quite familiar with, but stewardship is simply this. It is a careful and responsible management of something entrusted to one's care. The careful and responsible management of something entrusted to one's care. God has entrusted these great gifts and grace to us. Not just for our own enjoyment, not just for our own pleasure, not just so we can kick our feet up and take life easy and enjoy it and do whatever we want. But he's given us these great gifts and he's given us his grace so that we can extend it to others for his glory and for his honor. And that is what we're going to look at this morning is how we can take the grace God has given us and leverage it for his glory and for his honor. If you've got your Bible Turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. We are going to have the verses up on the screen, but I would always encourage you, if you can get your hands on a Bible, it's always so great to have that Bible in your hands because you can see the context around what's going on. And it paints a beautiful picture of what God is trying to communicate to us in his word. If you don't have a Bible, please come see me as soon as the service is over. We've got a free Bible for you. We would love to give it to you. First uh, Peter chapter four, we're going to start with verses one and two. It says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Let's leave that verse up there for just a second, because I want to take a moment to break this down before we get into the rest of 1 Peter chapter 4. Notice that the very beginning of verse 1 says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. This is where it begins for the Christian. There is nothing more important for us to understand as followers of Jesus Christ than the price that Jesus himself paid. So when it begins, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, it's saying there is nothing more important, nothing greater than this truth. And then we're going to talk about what comes from that truth. Jesus, 100% man, 100% God, the one and only son of God, lives a perfect life, should not have to die, but he suffers on the cross. At any moment, as God, as he is on the cross, he could come down off that cross if he wanted to. But he suffered, first and foremost, to glorify his Father in heaven. And as a result, we experience the forgiveness of sin if we place our faith in him. The great suffering, the great cost that he has paid. And what does the next part say? It says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Now this goes completely against our natural way of thinking. It goes completely against what this world tells us. See, the world tells us that at any cost, at any expense, whatever it takes, seek to be comfortable. Make sure that things are smooth. Make sure that things are easy. Understand, to be called a Christian and to serve and worship a God who suffered, 
That's a scary religion. But the great truth is that suffering is only for a moment. Our life is just like that. And then there's eternity. So that suffering is for only a moment. But it tells us that we should take on this same way of thinking. Now, that doesn't mean that as soon as we get out of church, go run and look for suffering. You should probably get rid of all your stuff and start living on the street. That's, that's not what this is saying here. It doesn't mean carelessly and senselessly look for suffering, but that we should be ready to embrace this type of life when it comes our way. It says arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now that doesn't mean that once we face these kind of difficulties, this kind of suffering, this kind of persecution in life, that we are never going to have sin again. But what it's talking about here is a pattern and lifestyle of sin. And then verse 2 is oh so important because it says, So as to live for the rest of time in the flesh no longer, for human passions, but for the will of God. And this sets the scene. For everything we're going to talk about this morning. This life is not about us. And if you're anything like me, anytime I hear that, anytime somebody says that to me, anytime I read that, it's a little bit of a kick in the gut. Wait a second, God. You're telling me this, this isn't about me at all? That I shouldn't make sure that I've got this great home, that I shouldn't make sure that everything is absolutely square and in line for me and my family, that I shouldn't make sure that everything is comfortable. See, the Bible tells us in Matthew 6, verse 33, seek ye first the kingdom of heaven. And then everything else will be taken care of. Everything else will be added to us. When we make verse 2, the cry of our life, the focus of our life, the passion of our life, that we will no longer live for human passions, but for the will of God. We're going to find a joy that is far greater than anything we can imagine. I've got, my, my wife and I have a little girl, six years old, promise. Most of you see her running around. Um, I was wild and crazy enough to let her bring her scooter this morning. Uh, so she scooted her way to church and she has scooted away her way all around church since she's gotten here. Um, but but she, is, she is just a bundle of joy and a big mess all at the same time. Any of you who are parents, you can probably relate to this a little bit, but there's something fun to watch with Promise. She has this crazy obsession with getting more and more toys. Like, hey, I picked up that paper off the floor. Can I get a toy? Hey, I brushed my teeth. Can I get a toy? Sometimes she'll be a little bit more laid back. She's like, I did something good, but I'm not going to get a toy this time. She's like really stepping out on a limb when she says that. But there's something really cool I love to watch with Promise. Because she's also got this very generous heart. She loves to give. She loves to make stuff for people. And she gets so excited when she takes one of her toys that she has loved to play with for weeks or months. And she says, you know what? I want to give this to my friend. And she gives it. She's like, I mean, she's just bouncing off. The, I mean, she's floating a few inches off the ground. She's just so excited to give. And, and I think in, in a, just a small picture of a six-year-old, 
we see a larger reality for our own lives. That when we're not living for ourselves, but we're living for something greater than us, this is when we find the greatest joy. And that's exactly what Peter is saying here in verse 2. Is that we should no longer be chasing after these own human passions, but that we should be living for the will of God. We should be living for the will of God because suffering will come. In fact, if you look a little bit further in chapter 4, look at verse 12. Verses 12 through 19 tell us more about this very suffering that does come for believers. Look at verse 12. It says this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And, and we do that, don't we? We're like, wait a second. What, what happened? I was... I was praying, I, I came to church, I was doing good things. Why did something bad just happen to me, God? What are you doing? And he says, don't, don't think it's something strange. This is normal. Verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, that will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God. And... If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Verse 19, one of the most encouraging verses that we find in the midst of this suffering. Verse 19 says this. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. A faithful creator. He doesn't waver. He doesn't take a misstep. He's never a no-show. He's faithful. When we face this kind of suffering, he's there. He's always there. And those moments that he seems like he's a long ways off, it's not a matter of him being a long way off because he wanted to get away from us. He's a long ways off because we have walked away from him. We need to understand that in those moments... We need to run back to him when it feels like he's a long ways off because he is faithful. He does not waver. He does not move. He is unchanging. It's also interesting what we see about this suffering here, that there's two types of suffering. We see that there's suffering because of persecution and there's suffering because of consequences. I remember when I was five years old, uh, I started playing baseball for the first time. And I uh, loved it. I, I decided as a five-year-old, I'm going to be a professional baseball player one day. I mean, it's set in stone, count on it. I mean, I got this great arm. Look, Dad, how far I can throw the baseball. And, you know, I'd go about five yards. It was not that impressive, but I knew it was impressive. And so one day I was outside my house, and I was standing by the road, and some cars would go by. And I came up with this brilliant idea that only a five-year-old could come up with. I decided that I was going to pick up a rock and the next car that drove by, I was going to show how far I could throw the rock and throw the rock over the car as it drove by. You guys can see where this is going, right? So the car comes, I've got my rock, 
And I just throw it as hard as I can right into the windshield of the car. I do the next most logical thing that a five-year-old can do. I run. I don't know where I'm running, but I run. And I go and I hide inside. And the next thing I hear my dad say is my full name. And I know that what comes next is not good. I was going to face some suffering, right? This is what we see here in verse 15. Now, he uses the examples of a murderer or a thief or a meddler, but essentially what he's saying is there is a suffering that comes from us making foolish mistakes, from our own sin. These are the type of sufferings that are not a, a, a good suffering to have. It's not something that we should glory in. It's not something that we should be proud of. It says, let none of us suffer for these reasons. But then there's a different kind of suffering. There's a suffering that we see comes... As it says in verse 14, if somebody is insulted for the name of Christ, then it says in verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. This, there's this suffering that comes when we are seeking to live in a way that brings glory to God. When we are carrying his name. Yesterday, I was uh, with a large Chinese church. Uh, they were doing a training, and they asked me to, to train several of the leaders in the church. And we had some discussion time at the end, uh, just some different things that some of the, the, the youth in that church were facing. Uh, these youth who were Christians and their parents weren't, and some of the things their parents would tell them to do and make them do, like worshiping idols and things like that, and how should they handle it. And I, I shared a story with them of a really, really good friend that we had when we lived in China. Uh, she was in her mid-20s, and uh, she was a faithful believer. Uh, she was one of the, the strongest believers that we knew when we were in China. And she would talk about every time that she went home to see her family, that she had to go into the bathroom to read her Bible or to pray. Because if her parents saw her, they would literally hit her and beat her because of it. But she would still do it anyway. Because she was going to spend time with Jesus. She was going to read the Bible. She was going to pray. And nothing was going to stop that. This is the other type of suffering. It says rejoice in this type of suffering. In Philippians it says we should be grateful that we can be counted worthy to suffer in this way. That we have this kind of opportunity. And these are the two types of suffering that we see coming. Those that are just consequences because we have lived foolishly. But then there's the suffering that comes when we are being faithful to God. It says in First Timothy or 2 Timothy 3.12, and uh, Jeremy pointed to this verse last week as well. It says, indeed, all who desire to live godly, a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's not might be persecuted, will be persecuted. Now, that's not going to look the same in every place, in every part of the world. But it does come. It may just be verbal persecution. It may be physical persecution. It may be both. But if you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ and you are faithfully following him, you will face persecution. It's not a matter of if. It's just a matter of when. Persecution is something that comes to believers. We see in John 15, verses 18 through 20, this is Jesus again. He says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. 
If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. It will come for the believer. It's a part of it. If we are not of this world, if we are living the way Christ has called us, it's going to come. It's going to be part of our life. And you say, Michael, okay, I thought we were talking about being good stewards of the grace, being good stewards of the gifts that God has given us for his glory and honor. What does all this persecution, what does all this suffering have to do with that? Because I want to put a disclaimer right here on the front end. That if you are going to be a radical Christian, if you are going to live your life in a way that is set apart from the comfortable Christian that we see in so many places in this country who calls themselves a Christian but still do whatever they want. If you're going to be different than that and you're going to look like Christ, you need to understand this is what's coming. And we have a choice. Are, are we going to follow Christ obediently and radically? and receive what comes for any believer who lives that way? Or are we going to seek to be comfortable? Just like Jesus said in John 15, if we are seeking comfort, then we are in the world. And the world loves its own. If your life is really comfortable right now, it might be time for an evaluation and a heart check. But I don't think it's fair to talk about being good stewards of the grace and the gifts that God has given us without also explaining what also is coming with that. It's just like any time I talk to somebody about the gospel who's not a Christian. I, I could share just the high points of what it means to be a Christian. That Well, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you turn away from your sin and you seek to live for Him well then you're guaranteed eternity in heaven and, and, and you'll have joy forever and, and God's blessing will be on you. I could say just that. I don't think that's fair. I, I think it's also fair to tell that person that if you're going to follow Christ, you're also going to face some very difficult times. Uh, there are going to be people who make fun of you, who laugh at you, who maybe even hurt you emotionally or psychologically, or even physically. We need to understand the full picture. We don't need to sell a half-truth. We need to share the gospel. And we see that there are two lines, or there's one line, and there's two sides to that line that Jesus tells us about in John 15. And we see the same thing here in 1 Peter chapter 4. Look at verses 3 through 6. In verse 3, it says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With, with respect to this, they are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. They will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Here we see the life of the selfish and how they treat those who are not like them. 
We see, we've talked about being good stewards, and here we see selfishness. And selfishness is just simply this. It's seeking or concentrating on one's own advantage, pleasure, or well-being without regard for others. And in reality, that's how we live our life, is in one of those two places where we are either focused on others or we are focused on ourselves. Uh, there's not a both end. It is an either or. And this brings us to the decision we must make. Are we going to be a servant or are we going to be selfish? And that's a very difficult and heavy question that we must ask ourselves and answer honestly. Are we going to be a servant or are we going to be selfish? That's what was taking place here in verse 3. The Gentiles are living for sensuality. They're living for passions. They're living for drunkenness. They're living for orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. They are chasing whatever it is that they can conceive in their heart, that they can conceive in their mind, and they are doing whatever they want, regardless of what the consequences may be. And many times those consequences are not seen here on earth. Many times those are consequences that come, as it says later here in this text, these consequences come when we stand before God and he judges us. Again, Jesus said in John 15 that if we live like the world, the world accepts us. It embraces us. It encourages us. It gives us a pat on the back. When we misstep with the world, they say, hey, what happened? Come back with us. Join us. Do what we're doing. This will be fun. This will be the best weekend ever. This will be the best Friday night ever. Just do what we're doing. This is selfishness. We're doing what we think is going to be instantaneous pleasure. What's going to bring the most joy to our life and what happens every single time is that on the back end of those moments and those events, we feel empty. So we either chase that or we chase something else to try to fill that emptiness. That is the way of the world. That is the way of the selfish. But then we see the servant. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. It says in verse 7, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. The first part of verse 11 it says, Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. We see the exact opposite of the selfish in these verses here. We see the life of a servant. The life of a servant. The last church that my wife and I were at uh, was a very, very important church to us. Uh, we had been at some other churches in the 15, 16 years that I've been in ministry. Uh, she grew up in some rough churches. Places where the men that were entrusted with the responsibility of looking over the church were very selfish. Um, they did what they wanted. My wife had a series of pastors that cheated on their wives. Uh, had a pastor who was dishonest with finances, a pastor that was dishonest in the way that he dealt with people. 
We've had some very difficult churches, but the last church was not that way. We had a pastor there uh, that, that is unbelievable. Uh, he'd been in, he's been in ministry now for almost uh, 50 years. Uh, he's been at this one church for 38 years. Uh, he's a, a co-writer of a book that has to deal with taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Incredible man of God. But the thing that really, really sold us on him, the thing when we were praying and thinking about going to this church, and I was thinking about going on staff at this church, was how this man was so clearly a servant. He was constantly thinking about others before himself. I remember the first time we went to his house when we went to visit, he got down on the floor in his, in his mid-60s at this point, gets down on the floor and is rolling around on the floor just playing with our daughter. And, and immediately the thought comes to my mind, this is just like Jesus. Everybody else is saying, hey, kids, get away. And Jesus is like, no, 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 let the kids come. I, I love the children. Uh, my role at that church was college pastor. We sat really close to Auburn University. And so we had 200 or so college students regularly coming to our church. And anytime we ever had an event, he would go out of his way, not just to show up at that event and, and say hi to the students, but he would serve them. He would be the first one behind the table to start serving food. He'd be the first one walking around, picking up dishes, cleaning up their tables. If he ever heard of one of our college students going through something rough, he would, he would say, hey, set it up that I have a meeting with them. I want to take them out to lunch. I just want to spend time with them. He, he's a pastor of a church of, of, of over a thousand people. And he's saying, hey, this one person has a problem. I, I, I'm going to invest in them. He was the picture and continues to be the picture of what we see here in verses 7 through 11. Uh, a man who is self-controlled and sober-minded. And, and just a, a side note about this word sober-minded. It's not talking specifically about alcohol. It's talking about having a mind that is focused and clear so that nothing is distracting it. For us as men, for example, competition, you know, we got that competitive nature. Competition is something that keeps us being from being sober-minded so many times. A lot of times for, for women, it might be jealousy. And, and these things are things that keep us from being sober-minded. So it says, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. In other words, that your prayers will not be hindered. And then in verse 9, it says, above all. This is what is supremely important. Keep loving one another earnestly. Show hospitality. Use your gifts. And it says this in verse 10, as good stewards of God's very grace. This is the very thing that we're being told to do is to be good stewards of this grace. So what is the life of the servant? The life of a servant is to worship God and to serve others. This is what we're to do with everything that God has given. So what are you good at? Just think about this for a moment. What are you good at? I mean, like, I know that I'm good at messing things up. That's not the type of good we're talking about, right? Like, what kind of gifts has God given you? Are, are you good musically? Like, Every Sunday morning, I'm amazed to watch this group up here because I know that is something I could never in 100,000 years ever do. I am not gifted with music or rhythm or a beat. 
Like if any of you have ever watched Seinfeld, the, the episode where Elaine's trying to dance, like that's me. I, there, there is no rhythm in this body whatsoever. I could never do that, but that's how they're gifted. And so what do they do? They take that gift and they use it for God's glory. I've got a good friend that, that he is incredibly gifted at organization. And so he's given his life to ministry, and the whole role that he has in ministry is specifically organization for the church as a whole. That, that he organizes the administration, he organizes the finances, he is over everything that has to do with organization. What is your gift? Are you gifted athletically? Then how can you leverage that for God's glory? Are you gifted artistically? How can you use that to be an, an example of God's grace to others? What is your gift? Embrace that. Don't try to run away from it. Don't try to do something separate of that. Embrace it and use it. God has given us a multitude of physical gifts, but he also gives us spiritual gifts that we see here in verse 11. It mentions two. To, to one who speaks. Speak the oracles of God. For whatever reason, God has given me an ability to talk. And so one of the things that I should do with that is be faithful to stand in front of others and talk about God and his word. He's done that for, for Jeremy. He's done that for Patrick. He's called us to be preachers of the word. Christy, she does a great job leading others. He has given her the ability to talk. And, and, and when we have these gifts, we should use them for his glory, these spiritual gifts. It also talks about the one who serves by the strength that God supplies. I'm fully convinced that, that when my little girl becomes a believer, she's going to be one of the greatest servants this world's ever seen. She doesn't know Christ right now. She's still lost and she's already a servant. I can't wait to see what happens when God grabs a hold of her heart. God gives us physical and spiritual gifts that we can leverage and use for his glory. 1 Peter, flip back to this, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. I'm going to close with this because I think this encompasses not just what we're talking about this morning, but it encompasses, this is, is sort of a theme verse for the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12 says this, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the purpose for us to live up to the standard of this difficult calling. Is that even those who lie about us, who persecute us, as it says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 4, those that malign us, in other words, they make fun of us, say evil things about us. These people who are against us, that when they see the way we live our life, and with what love and compassion we live our life, they can't help but glorify God. It's, it's not easy. I don't want you for a moment to think, hey, you know what? I just saw this in the Bible. This is what Pastor Michael said. I'm going to go live this life, and it's just going to be a breeze from here. It, it's, it's a difficult calling. 
but it's something that every single one of us who is called to follow Jesus Christ is called to live. This doesn't mean that we have to do exactly what our culture does or talk the way that our culture talks or act the way our culture acts. We should be all people, but most importantly, it does mean that we should strive to live in an upright way and serve the world in love and compassion. Think about what New City Church is all about. You'll see it all over all of our stuff. We are about grace and peace. Being grace and peace to others. Have you been grace and peace to anybody this past week? Have their lives been encouraged? Have their lives been put in a much better position because they had an encounter with you? And if not, why not? This is what we're called to be as Christians. To be good stewards of the grace that God has given to us and to use it for His glory and honor. And so I would challenge you from the moment you step out of this, this auditorium, this safe auditorium, as soon as you walk back out those doors and real life smacks you in the face again, and all of a sudden you're reminded of all the things you've got to get done today, ask God to give you the wisdom and the grace to remember to be grace and peace to others. To bless someone else's life. It may be that you sit down to lunch and you just take a moment and you're talking with your waiter and waitress and you just say, hey, how's your day been going? Just take a moment to talk with them. And if the opportunity's there, maybe even to pray with them. But just... See what it is that's going on in other people's lives and how you can encourage them. We are called to be Jesus Christ to those that we encounter every day. Would you pray with me?